Welcome to The Waitlist. I'm Alex. I'm a student trainee psychotherapist in the UK. According to MIND, there are 1.6 million people on the waiting list for mental health treatment with the NHS. A further 8 million can't get on the list because they're not deemed unwell enough. My aim for The Waitlist podcast is to explore different ways we can support our own mental health. I'll be interviewing people with a range of perspectives on mental well-being, including psychotherapy. If something piques your interest, I'd encourage you to do your own research. I'll be sharing resources in the show notes. Now let's get started with this week's episode. I'm delighted to be joined by Anne de Bottom, known widely as a writer of essayistic books that have been described as a philosophy of everyday life. He's written on love, travel, architecture and literature and has been a bestseller in 30 countries. Alan also started and helps to run School of Life, dedicated to a new vision of education. A few months ago, I had the pleasure of hearing Alan speak at an event I was attending. I learned that he's undertaken some training of his own in psychotherapy, and him and the School of Life team have launched a five-step process around mental well-being, which includes individual psychotherapy, therapeutic groups, mind and body, emotional education, and personal study. Alan, welcome to The Waitlist. Thank you so much. So at the waitlist, we believe that mental health can feel like a taboo topic to many and talking about our own mental well-being can kind of start to chip away at that taboo. And as I mentioned in the intro, I had the pleasure of seeing you host an in-person talk quite recently and you asked the audience the question, how are you mad? And I must confess, this is a question I'm borrowing often in my life, but at, at the start of every episode of the waitlist. So I wanted to bring that question to you, which is, how are you mad? <laughs> Well, it might be worth just just um, explaining to your listeners like why why that might be an interesting question. I think I mentioned it in the context of a date. If two people are on a date, they might ask each other this, and 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 that might sound rather odd because on a date you might expect people to chat about you know what's what's nice about them, what's positive, etc. And and being mad is uh, traditionally seen as as a real negative. But I think my starting point is look, all of us are likely to be disturbed in some way by childhood. And, you know, the lesson of psychotherapy is that no one develops without acquiring what I guess get called neurosis, um, warps of character that um, distort a kind of fair, mature response to events in, in, in the world. And one of the best things we can do with our neuroses is to get to know them. But, and again, this is the whole drift of psychotherapy, they're quite devilishly different to keep a track on. You know, self-knowledge is partly so hard because of a kind of pride and a, a defensiveness around insight. So it becomes very, very hard to know um, key things about oneself because it's too painful. It's too, like, humiliating. So that's why, you know, all of us are, are mere beginners in the art of kind of knowing ourselves. But one of the things that does distinguish people is is someone roughly on board with the project or are they really hostile to it or never thought about it? The question, how are you mad, is designed, I suppose, to tease that, that one out. If someone were to go, how do you mean I'm completely normal? <laughs> um, first of all, that would mean that, that they were very wedded to an idea of normality that could be quite unhelpful because, well, no one is normal and close up. And it's really good if people are roughly aware of it and are likely to be able to 
to um, accept it with good grace. I mean, a lot of a relationship is, is based on two people rubbing up against each other's difficult sides. And if someone says, I don't have any difficult sides, well, that's not a great beginning. It's not a lot to work with. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be quite hard. If someone goes, look, you know, I know I can be difficult. Well, they're not going to be that difficult. So one of the you know, best indications of sanity is a, a relatively gracious accommodation with the possibility of insanity. So, so someone who would go, you know, how do you mean? I'm not mad at all. What a mad thing to ask and storms out. You think, well, probably not a huge loss. To <laughs> but to come back to your uh, question, how am I mad? I mean, looked at in sufficient depth, that's really a way of saying, how are you neurotic? And, and behind that, who are you? And, um, well, A, I'm not going to fully tell you. Uh, and that's not out of hostility. It's just, uh, we've just met and this is a public forum. And, and I say that because I think that it's important. You know, we talk a lot about boundaries nowadays. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, one would be radically unboundaried to, to tell a stranger, <laughs> you know, who, who one was and what one's deepest fears and, and, and doubts were. But that's not to say that one can't hint and suggest. And I think doing so can be helpful because it allows other people to maybe have a, a more benevolent relationship to their own difficulties and challenges. One of the things I found very difficult is caution in life. I find it very hard to, to get an accurate sense of what is serious and what is not serious. I don't mean joke serious, I mean catastrophic serious. Yeah. So I would in popular language would be called a catastrophizer. And, and that means that uh, I, I think that the end is coming soon um, over many, many topics all the time. And um, you know, we're talking about psychotherapy. One of the things that psychotherapy can do to someone who might think that is to, is to say, what bit of the past might be present in moments when it feels like the end? And generally, there will be bits of it. You know, there's a wonderful quote from uh, Donald Winnicott, a great psychoanalyst who famously said, the catastrophe you fear will happen has already happened, which is such an iconic sort of statement because it, it really puts its finger on what psychotherapy does, which is to try and fish out the catastrophe that's already happened so that present and future doesn't need to be so difficult. That's not to say that there are no difficulties in the present at all, but it means that um, one might be readier to greet them with maturity mm-hmm. is a word I've mentioned a couple of times now, but it's, you know, it, it's a very important concept, I think, in psychotherapy. It's a very important goal. And uh, I'm sometimes also equated with adulthood, because one could be an adult and not mature, or quite a young person mature. Um, so too arbitrary. But, but it, it has to do with things like um, capacity to separate out past from present, uh, capacity to, to properly distinguish elements of the situation, um, to keep a hold of projections, um, to make sure one's responding to what is actually in front of you rather than what you might imagine is in front of you. All of these techniques. Um, and, and all of this I found traditionally very hard. And so, so I think that's one of the ways in which um, I'm immature. And I suppose what's coming up for me is for many people in those moments, whether past, present, or even thinking about the future, what can be challenging is understanding our relationship to those. And if we can get to know ourselves, mm. then we have an opportunity to understand it better. And even if those situations are the same, our relationship to them might be, might be different. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and in a way, 
You know, people go, well, how might psychotherapy change me? You, you know, people sometimes look for very dramatic results. And, and I'm not saying that results are not significant, but it might just be that, as you suggest, that, that the relationship to a problem changes or, you know, and that one can reflect on it. Mm. One isn't just in it. One can reflect on it. Mm. There's a really big difference between saying, um, this is a catastrophe and I feel it's, you know, it may be the two at the same, but just that little bit of distance is, I think, can be a real achievement. And, and I think that's the work of sort of self-awareness. Mm. So the School of Life recently launched its own hub of psychotherapy, um, which connects people with a range of qualified therapists. What gave you and the team the idea to do that? Yeah. Well, um, because I've always really been interested in psychotherapy, it stood to reason that um, the School of Life could and should have its own psychotherapy team. We've gathered together a group of practitioners. You know, it's going very nicely. I think one of the questions that I'm, I'm really interested in is, well, how might the School of Life psychotherapy be a little bit different from that you find anywhere else? Is there something a little bit special? And, and I think there is. And I think it, it's really this. School of Life as an organization is based on giving people ideas to help them with challenges of emotional life. It's an educational medium in, we don't often say that it's basically mental health. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a mental health educational organization. And, and we do this through books, through YouTube, um, through our social media channels. We put out ideas. And, and the thinking behind that is people can do a lot of the work themselves. There's a huge amount that you can do by, by reading, reflecting, and, and, and all that. But then I think at a certain point, there's also the idea that, that you might need somebody else. You might need a person called a psychotherapist to, mm-hmm. to help you to see things that you can't otherwise see. And in terms of what might psychotherapy be like at the School of Life, I think that it might appeal to people who do quite a lot of thinking themselves anyway, which is not everyone who might choose to visit psychotherapy. I think some people almost don't want to know too much about psychotherapy. They don't, they see a real division between they're doing with a psychotherapist and the rest of their lives. They don't, you know, it's, it's a it's time, 50 minutes a week or twice a week or whatever it is that they go off and they do this thing. And they don't necessarily carry that through in other areas. They, they might be reading books that have nothing to do with psychotherapy. It might be, you know, thinking of all sorts of ideas, but not to do with psychotherapy. I think that, um, school of life approach is try to build a connection between psychotherapy and a kind of intellectual, if I can put it that way, that sounds cold, but at least a, a kind of rational understanding of emotional life mm. that can carry on outside the room. You might want to journal, you might want to read, you might want to attend classes, you might want to be an agent in your own healing outside of a therapy session. And there are various tools that the School of Life is very in, in putting forward that, that can do that. Mm. So, so I think that's, that's the way we see it being complementary to other stuff we do. Absolutely. I think that's so interesting because there is so much out there. If we think about social media and kind of influencers talking about the quote unquote mental health space and how challenging it can be to really unpick, well, what's helpful of this? What's less helpful? And what do I want to bring into my own kind of agency, as it were? I also remember, and I've shared this before, um, and I don't mind sharing again. When I started my own psychotherapy, when I was, you know, many, many years ago, I remember feeling like I, I had a, a wad of paper of issues that I thought, right, I want to get solved. And whilst she wasn't at a desk, 
I, I felt like I was putting it on the desk and saying, okay, how do we sift through all this stuff? <laughs> and that's not the experience that I now in training kind of recognize from psychotherapy, but it's so important to link with how you're experiencing your everyday life as well, not just those 50 minutes in the room, you yeah. said. But I think, you know, I think it is interesting because, because the world is changing so fast. But I mean, I'm, I'm amazed by how on social media, particularly Instagram, as you said, there is this whole range of psychotherapists who will be actively dispensing advice. And, you know, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, some, is, some of it is good and some of it is a little bit alarming in a sense that it is um, practitioners, psychotherapists talking. And I don't know whether that's not psychotherapy necessarily as, as I've come to understand it. The title of psychotherapist really applies to somebody who is practicing in a room with a client and isn't directly telling people how to live, you know, five ways to deal with this, seven ways to deal with that. Now, that could be fine to say five ways, seven ways, etc. Why not? Advice is good. But I wonder about the, I wonder about the dividing line between advice giving and psychotherapy. I think when you put the hat on called psychotherapy, I think you want to be doing something slightly different, which is not necessarily declaiming with such authority what what is what. And, and, and I say this as someone who does like to declaim what is what, but I don't do that as a psychotherapist. And I sort of wonder whether people should. Um, as I say, advice given, great. Bullet points, list of things, great. But, but, but be wary of saying that is psychotherapy. As I understand it, psychotherapy and people who earned the title of being psychotherapists, when they're actually doing psychotherapy, what I think they're doing is trying to elicit very, very deep and often elusive bits of a client's mind through a process of really careful attention and, um, encouragement and, often kindness, but also intelligence. This will help a person on their journey of self-discovery. And I think that's quite different from going, there are five things wrong with you, or here are six things to watch out for in a partner. You know, I, that doesn't go on in psychotherapy. So, so I, I do worry a little bit that we're, we're kind of putting across a vision of what psychotherapy is, which is just not quite accurate. Mm, absolutely. And what's coming up for me is it's very personal. And in the therapy room some therapists might describe it as relational depending on how they're training but it sounds like with um the resources with the school of life it's about self-discovery and so that's still very personal even if it's not in a room for 50 minutes with a quote-unquote professional therapist yes i mean look it's it's haunting isn't it how how little we know about what other people are really going through and what can be helpful for them. And I think sharp degree of modesty is in order just because, you know, this is, this is definitely the lesson of being a psychotherapist is that you're taking very vulnerable people who come to see you in a sort of one on one session. And you've really got to be careful about what you're saying. And wise people will say things like do no harm above anything else. You know, I came originally from a philosophical background. And I think my assumption had been from a distance. But psychotherapy was just another version of a kind of ancient Greek or Roman approach to philosophy, which was essentially uh, advice giving. It's like, here's how to live. And, you know, the Stoics did this most famously. And, and, you know, they've got all sorts of advice for people who are bereaved or who suffered a reversal or whatever. But, 
But I think psychotherapy is, is something different from advice. As I say, advice is, is great and we all need it and it can be very interesting, very stimulating, even when it's, even when it's slightly off tangent, it often brings out what you think simply because it reminds you, because it evokes for you how you disagree. And then from that, you can assemble what you do think. But, but I think the actual practice of psychotherapy is its modesty. I mean, if we think back to, to Freud and, you know, how it all got started with free association and many psychotherapists don't do free association anymore. What that is is a fascinating idea that you give the client license to say pretty much whatever comes in their mind. You don't comment that much on it. You certainly don't moralize, judge, say things like, that doesn't sound like a good idea or um, how disgusting or anything like that. Absolutely not. You encourage the, the mind to know itself better through a process of kind of open-minded reception to another's thoughts, however tangled and odd and directionless they might seem at first. And I think that is a, an amazing advance in kind of humanity's knowledge of itself. That this this emerged as a kind of process in the early early twentieth century is is really a, it's a true sort of luxury that, that people allowed themselves to listen very closely to one another in this very special non judgmental patient way. After all, we know from our lives that one of the most painful things is we don't get heard enough. Everybody feels unheard. I mean, it's the most you know um, widespread. Feeling. And we also know how lovely it is to be her. And, you know, one of the interesting things about parenting is the best way to calm an agitated child down, most furious or playing up in some way is to signal that you are hearing their feet. It is a, you know, it's come, thank goodness, quite a well-known idea in parenting, but it's, it's absolutely what you need to do. If, if a child is exhibiting very loud antisocial behavior, Almost always a problem of something in them having not been listened to sort of cry for help. Um, but, but we're all children. That's after all one of the kind of insights of psychotherapy that the child self continues way into adulthood. So that's why we need these special people called psychotherapists who could really benefit from them, who will continue to do that, that very closely focused, kindly listening. Yeah. Thank you for that. And so you're in training at the moment. I'd love to understand what has surprised you and in your training so far. What's what's been coming up for you? Hmm. I think that psychotherapy training is a, is a very bold proposition. I think in many ways it's comparable to what happens in the arts: novel writing, painting, photography, filmmaking. Of course, there's a lot of things that can be taught in those areas. But I think there's also things that either develop spontaneously or they're from the start or anyway have much more to do with the individual and where they are. And so I think it's a bold gambit to stick a sign above your door and say, we train psychotherapists. I think one should say, we train people to know certain ideas about psychotherapy. Whether you can then go on to be a psychotherapist um, with everything that comes associated with that, you know, it's not like pilot school. Pilot school, you can guarantee that someone will come out and they'll know how to fly the plane uh, or they won't be passed. Um, and, and as I say, it's, it's really, really complicated. And I think we need to be really modest as a society about how much we know about what makes good psychotherapists and therefore what we can teach. 
as a hint, it, it's closer to an art than a science in, in many ways. You know, I'm fascinated by how artificial intelligence researchers are scouring through hundreds of hours of recordings of, of sessions, psychotherapy sessions, in a quest to understand the sort of active ingredients of psychotherapy. You know, mm. What bits of this actually work? And right now, in 2023, we don't know. You know knowledge is not, not there yet. You have to kind of accept that. We know a few things that, that will definitely work. And, and often they're very simple things. I mean, to listen very closely to someone and replay back to them what they've just told you. You know, if there's going to be one thing that you should do, um, it's that, you know, someone will tell you, I'm absolutely furious with the world. And if you say back to them, I hear that you're finding things really difficult at the moment in many ways, they will instantly feel, you know, their, their heart rate will, um, you know, show all sorts of positive things and their muscles will do all sorts of positive things because it's just automatic sense that, that they found an audience for, that they found an audience for their pains. Um, so I think, you know, that definitely works. Um, uh, not saying too much definitely works, but, but, you know, then it gets more complicated and it, and therapists have a hugely varying success rate. Um, my hunch is that, um, being a good psychotherapist is a, is a mixture of different traits. You know, you've got to be very compassionate and kind. You've got to be very sympathetic to a person's problems, but also ambitious about how they might progress. Um, you really, I think, need to dive very deep into yourself and see at first hand how difficult it is to progress, but also you know, if you have first-hand experience of some of the things that your client is going through, that's going to help a lot. Um, you know, if, if, if you know some of the difficulties, then you will have just that kind of visceral experience. And none of that can be guaranteed on something called a psychotherapy course. So I think that's the, as I say, the, the bold gamut of these training things. So going back a little while now, a few years ago, uh, one of the books that I've loved of yours is Status Anxiety. Um, and in that book, you talk about self-worth and uh, I think you use the term social credits. We look forward to confirm our own self-worth through others. Fast forwarding to the here and now in 2023, how do you think the world changing in those 15 years has impacted our status anxiety? Mm. Well, perhaps we just sort of slightly recap about what, what I was saying status anxiety was. I mean, really, it comes down to love. So as human beings, we're incredibly sensitive. I, I use the word love in a, in a loose sense, not a romantic sense and not a sexual sense. In a loose sense, human beings are really receptive to how much they are loved. As little children, um, obviously very receptive. They respond very well to the presence of love and very badly to the presence of a, a lack of love. And I think that's a general sort of human feature. Most of, most of what we call mental illness can ultimately often be traced back to a shortfall or a complexity around the giving and receiving of love. As a child grows up, it starts to become aware that there is an element of love that is given in relation to uh, achievement and external activity. And there's a real difference in how much of a feature that is in people's lives. So some people, you know, they'll ring a lot of bells. In other words, they receive a lot more love depending on what happens outside world. And others, that's not particularly a thing that they've felt. Um, they felt that who they were was the important thing. 
and frankly, what they were doing in their GCSE or how their university entrance went or whatever. It's not really here or there. But I think it's fair to say the world we live in is an achievement focus. We are taught and encouraged to think pretty well of ourselves if we've um, got some demonstrable worldly achievements behind us, particularly in relation to accumulated funding. Uh, might also be to be known to strangers in a positive way, what we'd otherwise call being famous, and generally to have kind of moved external building blocks of the world in a in an identifiable way. You know, this is highly rewarded if you arrived at an average dinner party in a metropolis in the Western world and declared that you know, your greatest achievement was finding inner peace. People would look at you very strangely. I mean, it's just not the ambition. They'll go, well, what do you do? And if, if you persisted, perhaps unwisely, you were going for it, you might persist and say, well, yeah, what I do is I try and search for any peace. And they go, well, what job do you do? And you'd go, oh, right. Oh, well, I'm a lawyer. But I don't, you know, screw that. Let's, let's go back to the important thing. You know, that would see you, you would like immediately identify yourself as quite a clear character. Um, hasn't always been true. And there are, you know, moments in world history and in different societies where I'm uh, was much more highly prized. If you lived in a, monastic community of 9th century Ireland. And you said, you know, the purpose of my life is to, you know, you like the spiritual. People go, oh, of course. Me too. <laughs> uh, let's go for it. Um, so that would be something that's happily straightforward. If you're Buddhist in, uh, you're in Nepal in uh, the 11th century, again, if you, if you said that uh, the goal of your life was um, to, uh, you know, perceive the absolute in the presence of the finite, um, people go, yeah, sure. <laughs> so again, you would sound very odd doing that today. So, so to come back to the status anxiety, I think that by the time that an average person in the modern world finishes university, they start to be aware of an enormous pressure on, which is it no longer matters whether you're fun, kind, interesting, or, you know, have a nice dog or uh, whether your granny's a friendly person or your house has always got muffins on the go in it, whatever it can. But whatever it is, what really says start to matter is what are you doing? What are you achieving? And that pressure ramps up. So, and it doesn't really let go until you're sitting and you know, drop out. And this leads in, in many of us, perhaps all of us to some extent, to a terrific sense of status anxiety. And it often comes to head when you know, people meet you for the first time and they say, what do you do? And according to how you answer that question, people are either really pleased to see you and might want to see you again, or they're like, Okay. And, you know, take their, take their distance. It could be frightening, especially if you said that you were not doing anything or have a spiritual goal in it. So this is a real kind of pressure on people. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it's slightly different maybe from the simple quest for material goods. Of course, we need, you know, people will say, you might say, well, you need money to live, you need a place to live, etc." Yes, you do. But I think the status race is both of linked to this and slightly departs from it. For many people, above a certain income, they're no longer working for just what they're going to spend or what they need to retire on. They're working for something slightly different, which is they're working in order to gain the approval of those around them or, or, or perhaps strangers. And I think it's a very difficult way to some people are really happy with that. And they're like, this is what, what I like. And there are Positive stories you could spin about that. And then there are other groups that, that this is anything from a problem to a mental illness. So depending on, you know, you could land anywhere on that, on that 
And I would imagine the kind of trick underlying within that is that as that status in quotation marks changes, the people around you changes and the, and the goalposts move. So I'm wondering if there's a sense of um, that being a continuous kind of cycle. It's not something that you would necessarily arrive at, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Yes, but we are incredibly porous and receptive to what other people around us are thinking and doing. And somebody who, when they were a student, would be really happy to eat at a really cheap place, really happy just to own an angle poise lamp or duvet. That's it. Um, you know, will by 30 be expecting certain things, by 40 other things. And, you know, the list will get very, very long. And that list partly will be innate, but to a large extent, also be to do with what other people are saying matters. And this is where our brand advertising, of course, comes in and recognizes that we've got many of us quite a weak hold on our sense of who we are and what we want. I mean, the whole idea that somebody might give you a desire that you didn't have before is, is structurally quite an odd idea. Like, well, I didn't know I needed that coach, but now I really do need it, or at least want it very, very badly. And, but I didn't know about it. But mm. it. And, and, and we also know enough about psychology to realize that sometimes, not all, but sometimes these material things are connected up with missing psychological things and particularly moments of psychological proficiency, poverty in a way that, um, Material accumulation starts to seem very, very high. As we know that when things are going really well for us and we're really at peace, I mean, take a simple example. Think of how you dress when you're with people that you really love and trust. It doesn't really matter how you dress. You, you literally just put on a jumper and, and you just hang out because you know that, that they just, they like you. You like them. You're just hanging out. And think of how much anxiety one has. When it comes to going to a party, and, and why is it particularly a party where you might not know that? And then suddenly dressing up, you know, it's often presented as a bit of fun. I enjoy dressing, but it's really kind of armor against who might judge one very negatively. So it's a defense against unkindness. And so I think the more that we make the world feel like kindness, uh, the less people will want and, and vice versa. So there's a definitely a sad story. You could tell about the motives for why we uh, want as much as we want when we do. Mm, yeah, thank you for that. It's so insightful. I want us to come back to the school of life mm. a little bit. Um, are you able to share a little bit about those key steps around emotional education and, and some of the, I don't know why I was going to say formulas, but some of the elements that you have within those building blocks of the school of life? Sure, look, we, we've written now about 60 books as, as an organization. Um, and, and there, there are themes. Um, we, we made a collection with Penguin of years ago from School of Life and Emotional Education, which was in a way, in a vulgar way, our greatest hits, you know, the, the key sort of things that we were, we wanted to touch on. And broadly speaking, we kind of go through some of the impediments to a flourishing life emotionally and some of the positive ingredients. I mean, you know, it's a lot of like what we've been talking about today, but um, just to uh, latch onto a few things. So, you know, we've got some views, for example, on addiction. Now, addiction is often framed as a love of a particular thing that you're addicted to, you know, alcohol, pornography. Um, it could be checking the news, 
Um, you know, people say, I'm an ad exercise, you know, all sorts of people are addicted to all sorts of things. Um, the way we look at this, and this is, you know, a very classically psychotherapeutic way is that the, the so-called addict is not so much in love with certain things as in flight from certain things, um, that they're finding unbearable to think about, to acknowledge, to digest, reconcile themselves to. And so the more powerful the addiction, the more, the more there is something that can't be faced. So what we're dealing with is not a, it's not something you need to get moralistic about or, or even strict about. It really generally addicts need to be treated with love because they end to come back. You know, that's where the problem kind of began. And they need particular encouragement to face something awful, which they've, they've lacked, the, you know, the support mm. to, to, mm. to face. So that's, you know, one, one kind of idea. And, and, you know, as I say, you'll, you'll recognize that in, in most of what we do, we are pushing a broadly psychotherapeutic model of, of kind of healing. Um, we talk sometimes about people pleasing and people pleasing is now people pleasing sounds like one of those things that's it's marvelous. Like, well, you know, you want to make other people happy. Great. You know, smiling a lot and hoping that other people are, are cheerful too. Um, there is, of course, an, a sort of darker underbelly because we're not talking about people who are necessarily cheerful so much as people who don't feel that their less cheerful sides have got place, got legitimacy. They are unable to be sad rather than actually happy. And they're unable to be sad generally because their true selves have not been legitimated by those or the environment brought them up. And, and that's terribly poignant. So we deal in, in many ways with problems of underconfidence, if you like. And a lot of psychotherapy is about how do you become yourself or an individual or your true self. There are different ways of pointing to roughly the same thing. But it, it, it's really got to do with kind of acceding to your fullest capacities and working out what's getting in the way of things. And I think there are so many things that human beings are capable of. Our, our brains are extraordinary places. Most of us will die with, firstly, most of those brains unexplored and also much of our potential you know, locked up. And this is the great you know, tragedy of, of, of humanity, the people that we call geniuses, extraordinary people, are, are just people who, through a range you know, of luck and fortunate accident, etc., have been able to access some of what is inside all of us. Partly why they attract so much envy. They attract so much envy because we recognize that in them and in their lives, we're seeing an echo of what we could have been and what we could be. I mean, genuine, if only you know, circumstances were different. In an ad area, so it's not a political program necessarily, mm-hmm. because it's as much a an internal psychological blocks. So I'd say that the School of Life is, is, is interested in just a range of psychological blocks that gets in the way of um, proper development. It's interesting. I feel like as you're explaining things there, things are shifting in my mind a little bit of, um, I would imagine, well, I know as somebody who has previously had therapy and is in therapy now, but as in, in training, and when I speak to my friends, knowing I'm in training, Often the perception is, I have this thing that's right in front of me that I want to solve. And as you're talking, the vision that I have is, I have this thing right in front of me. And it's not that that necessarily needs solving, but it's finding a way to kind of move past it because there's something else beyond that. So it's kind of, I suppose what I'm saying is, it's a 
longer process than a tick a box. Okay, I, I've got rid of that addiction now, or I've solved that thing I had with anxiety or whatever. It's, it's something more than that. Yes. I mean, look, I'm really sympathetic to people's desire for a quick fix. My goodness. I mean, why wouldn't one want a quick fix? It would be so, so brilliant. But it does seem as if in psychological life, speed can sometimes be a bit of an enemy of the kind of the right solution. I think that one, one of the kind of mysteries of the way the mind works is that it often doesn't release its best thoughts when it's instantly commanded. You know, somebody goes like, what are you doing? What's this? Or, or, or tell me this. You know, you can't quite say the mind is not, not kind of ready. And this is kind of the mystery and, and the beauty. And that's what's very nice about psychotherapy as a setup. You know, you've got 50 minutes in which to feel your way quite gently towards certain ideas that might not have come up. If a friend had just said, if a friend said, what's going on in your relationship? Or what's going on in your working life? The first answer might not have been particularly accurate. But if given a lot of time, you can let things emerge. And I think that that notion of, that notion of important things emerging is, is really central to psychotherapy and, and well, to lots of traditions. I mean, it's why we have things like mindfulness, reflection, but also, you know, walking meditations and all sorts of things that, that are really sort of saying together, they're all saying, let things bubble up, that there are things which if you point the gun of questioning too, too, too tightly. That the answer won't, won't emerge. Let's touch on insomnia. You know, many people find it really hard either to get to sleep or to stay asleep. Um, and it's obviously a really distressing thing because, you know, you've got busy days and so you haven't slept, et cetera. But often what can be happening when you can't sleep is that certain things are trying to break through uh, to consciousness, certain difficult, painful, poignant, something, ideas are struggling to break through. It's, it's often, we can think of insomnia as a kind of revenge by the mind, by, by the part of the mind that wants to know itself on the busyness of our routines. And so, you know, one of the things that one can do, one can't sleep, is, is just to sort of as it were, ask the mind what's going on. Yeah. You know, how are we feeling? What, what is what's coming up? What's, what's worrying? What's, where are we? And, and these, these are odd questions to ask because Odd, first of all, it's odd to ask oneself a question. You think, no, I ask other people questions and I know what I think. Right? I mean, sometimes we might ask ourselves a question like, what do I want for supper? You might go, mm, we might walk around the kitchen for a minute going, mm, what do I want for supper? But generally, you don't wander around the kitchen going, who am I? Or, or who am I angry? Mm. But to ask oneself a question like, who am I angry? Or who am I hurt by? You know, it's a rarer day when someone won't hurt us. And they don't mean to. Sometimes they do mean to, because sadly it's got a lot of aggression around. But to ask yourself, well, you know, what's hurt me today? Or indeed, what am I sad about? Um, these aren't necessary things we'll know immediately. You give us enough time. Then all sorts of really fascinating things can, can start to emerge. And so there's the kind of the school of night, if you like, that, that can teach you all sorts of things and, and the school of therapy. One of the questions I often ask my guests, particularly if they are uh, psychotherapists, is cost can be a barrier to psychotherapy for many people and what kind of low cost or no cost resources are out there. And often I get some fantastic responses about, you know, go to training schools or finally go online to these websites. But it sounds like what you're saying is 
how are you reflecting with yourselves? What opportunities do you have to do that? Whether it's kind of walking meditation or pondering in the kitchen. What other tips might you be able to share for people in that regard? I mean, look, it's worth just saying a few things on that problem. It's a bizarre sort of mismatch. I know it's common to lament the shortage of, of therapists, and, and, and it's absolutely true. I think part of the shortage is to do, and I think we have to sort of admit it as people who care about psychotherapy, part of it has to do with the at least uncertain efficacy of psychotherapy. Psychotherapy has not been able to convince the world in very strong terms that it is helpful enough to merit enormous resources. Governments and medical bodies, etc., do do very rigorous examinations of things, of all treatments that are placed. And if a treatment is, you know, 70%, 80%, 90%, 100% effective, it will be funded. And I speak as somebody with enormous respect, interest in psychotherapy. Psychotherapy has not been able to cross that threshold. I think we need to admit that mm-hmm. to ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult thought, but uh, it's at best 50%. Uh, and of that 50%, you know, there's another 25% in terms of rating the efficacy of psychotherapy, where within a few months, you're back to your base rate of distress. So we're dealing with something that is fascinating and wonderful, but whose utility as a, as a broad answer to human distress is, or could put it as most politely, question, mm. question. And so I think in terms of what, what people who care about psychotherapy need to do is, to try and advance us to the very best kind of psychotherapy. The 25% that's currently really great and is making a massive difference in people's lives. We need to understand how we can turn that 25% into 90%. It's, it's sad because in many ways, even though psychotherapy has become more and more popular and well-known, in terms of the actual research that people are doing, you know, the pioneering days of psychotherapy are in some ways behind us. There's not that much attention being given to not just how do we diffuse it, how do we make it cheaper, how do we, but so how do we make it work as well as it can? How can we think about that? And I think that is definitely an area to put resources into. I am a great fan of technology and its ability, you know, and, and broad more broadly data and science to try and lift our rates of success in psychotherapy to try and understand things like what makes it possible for one person to be really happy with one therapist and not with another? What is it about that therapist and that client? What's, what's the match? How can we make sure that that match gets really, really good? Um, what should be happening? Ideally, in those 50, some sessions feel really great. Others don't. Each session might be 50 pounds, 100 pounds. It's a lot of money. How do we make sure that that money is really well spent? So awful lot of questions still, still to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm reminded of the conversation we had towards the beginning of this episode, which is around that kind of art and science kind of overlap, I suppose. And I think in what you're saying is what the world requires, or certainly in our culture, what the world requires is more of the science, more of the evidence around how is this working? And once we can understand that, how can we do more of that? Yeah. And, you know, look, I... I don't want to, you know, some people might, might bristle because imagine this model applied to literature where one said, 
look, what we need to do is to understand the science of how to write a good novel. And then we'll have many, many more good novels. And you know, you might say, well, good luck. Good luck to you on that, because it's going to take a long, long time until we really understand what a good novel is. So, so there's an awful lot that we can do with what we have at present. But if we're talking about the mass, mass adoption of psychotherapy, you know, particularly the, the government sponsorship of psychotherapy, we've got to see how we got to where we got to. I think anyone who cares about this topic would hate it for it to be merely a niche activity devoted to those who are privileged or in other ways unusually committed. That, that, that would seem to make psychotherapy into a kind of cult that, that wouldn't, wouldn't really be helpful. But in order for it not to be, in order for its truly sort of broad acceptance, we may need to do a little bit more thinking about what it is, when it works and all that. So my final question is, in thinking about having conversations around whether it's our own mental well-being or others' mental well-being, so not as um, therapists or professionals, but in our daily lives, as you've been in your training and of all of the work and writing that you've done over the years, is there a tip that you can give to people to just have better, more meaningful conversations? I think the ability to even mention this thing we call mental health is, is a terrific advance. And to mention it without pejorative associations, you know, is, is a real kind of advance. So to mention it in the same spirit as we would mention bodily health. Um, and also to, to accept that mental health is something that can increase or decrease um, along a day, along a week, you know, one could say, I'm not feeling very mentally healthy at the moment. Now, previous ages might not have recognized the language, but they would have put the same issue in a different way. They might have said, I'm feeling oppressive or I'm oppressed or I'm feeling paranoid or I'm feeling anxious or whatever. I don't think it's a bad thing to be, to be using that term mental health and just, and to say, you know, I've been feeling more or less mentally healthy. It makes us usefully vigilant of certain and it's features of the mind, which definitely are present at extremes of mental ill health. And if we can learn to catch them in the more kind of benign everyday moments, then that might prevent, you know, real, real kind of extremes. I think we are becoming more literate, emotionally literate societies. That's got to be a good thing. Ultimately, I do think that psychotherapy is based on a thesis about kindness and love above anything else. And I think that we are aligned with the deep values of psychotherapy whenever we are aligned with the deep values of love and kindness. Now, it's not easy. All of us are short-tempered, are under pressure, are worried, are insecure, etc. And one of the most lovely concepts in psychotherapy um, is the concept of rupture and repair. In other words, that relationships can have moments of rupture, but Mature unions have moments of repair, which is really a return of the more mature faculties of kindness, forgiveness, etc. I think that, you know, we live in a good society when we live in a society that has adequate provision for repair, which is that people should be given the encouragement and the space in which to apologize, to understand one another, to forgive one another, to understand what it looks like through another's eyes. All of that. And I think like many people, you know, one can say that the, the advance of civilization has not necessarily kept pace with an advance in levels of tolerance and kindness. Mm. Um, and that's something very sobering. And that's something that everyone who cares about psychotherapy should 
be thinking about and worrying about. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me, sir. I really appreciate it. Real pleasure. <laughs>